So in this week's Parsha, so I think we're going to focus primarily on the story of the Egel, but I want to ask you all a question about something that happened before the Egel that is very, that I don't have an answer to this question. I don't have a, and the same question really comes up earlier in Parsha's, um, in Parsha's Tetzave, similarly. And I didn't, I, I, I'm sure the answer exists, but I just, I haven't found it. So if you guys bump into it ever, please let me know. The question is as follows. We know that the building of the Mishkan and all the vessels of the Mishkan happens in Parsha's Truma. Right? In Parsha's Truma, we have all the vessels of the Mishkan, except for two. There are two vessels that are one in Tetzava and one in Kisisa that are not taught to Moshe or told over in Parsha's uh, Truma. So the first is the golden Mizbeach, the Mizbeach Haktores. And that uh, we first find in Parshas Tetzave. And the second is the kiyar, the sink, kind of the, the, the urn that they use to wash their hands. The kiyar is found also found in, the, in this week's Parsha, in Parshas Kisisa. And it's not clear to me, I haven't seen at least a, 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 a answer or even anybody talking about this, about why, about why the kiyar is first is, is not talked about in Parshas um, in Parshas uh, Truma, and also why the other thing and why the the Mizbeach um, as well is not talked about in Parshas Truma. So I don't I don't know, and that's that's something which I think is an interesting question. Okay, the other thing I want to point out over here is that if you look in the Sikh Parsha, it talks about you know earlier you look at verse twenty three in chapter thirty. It talks about the the um, it talks about the uh, what's it called the Shevan Hamishcha, right? The oil which they use to anoint all all the vessels, and um, it also talks about the the Ketores, uh, the incense. So before we start the story of the Ega, I want to just say a quick Dvar Torah, a quick thought about the Ketores. That is probably pretty well known, but I think still worth re repeating. There's a famous Gemara in Tainus. The Gemara says that when the Jews have to, when the Jews pray for rain, right, so that they have to pray with the Pishe B'nai Yisrael, that they have to include in their in their congregations in their prayers, they have to include the sinners of the Jewish people. And the Gemara over there brings an interesting source. The Gemara brings a source and says we learn this from the Ketorans. That the Ketores had in it a bad spice, the Chalbana, and even though it was a bad spice, it was still, if you don't have the Ketores is missing that spice, it's not kosher. So too, even you know, though the sinners are a so-called bad spice, right, bad seed, right, but they are, they, if you, when you're davening for God to, to spare you, to save you, you have to have the sinners of the Jewish people. But it's not, it's, what? What actually is the Chalbana? I'm, I'm, I'm going to say the English. I think this is the English translation. Uh, I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm going to try to pronounce. I think it's Galabon, Galabon, Galabon. Wait, I don't know. I don't know. The art scroll translates. I, I don't know. You know it's up over there. It's some kind of sap. It's some kind of, it's some kind of sap. It's not particularly um, uh, good smell. Okay. Well, okay. You know, it's not. But so, but what? But what the Gemara doesn't explain is. Yes, we see this in the Ktoras, but what's the relationship between the Ktoras and um, and public prayer for 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 a tragedy? And why and what and why indeed is it important to have the centers of the Jewish people? 
right? What's the benefit of having them over there? Why kind of is it a necessity? So there is a famous idea by, by the Ktaras that I heard from my Rosh Hashiva that the Ktaras has a very special role. That we know that when there was a plague in the camp, so it says that Moshe told Aaron, go take Ktaras uh, and bring it out in the camp to go save the, to go save the Jews. This was only said once in the Torah. When there was a Magefa, but the Magefa, the plague, which is a Magefa, was after the story of Korah. And it says that the reason why there was a plague then, and the reason why the Ketores was the antidote to this plague was because the plague that came from Korah was the plague of Machlokas, was the plague of dispute, of the party of Korah trying to undermine the unity and the and the togetherness of the Jewish people, right? The essence of Korach is not so much his heresy, but his strife, right? Korach Ba'adaso are vilified because of their machlokis, because of their argument, because of their dispute, because of their trying to cause a rift among the Jewish people. So the antidote to that problem, to that, to the damage that was caused by that, which brought about the plague, so it says that the antidote was the Kitaris. Why is the antidote the Ktoris? The antidote the Ktoris is, is because the Ktoris symbolizes all different types of Jewish people that are brought together in the service of Hashem, right? The places where we have the strongest levels of unity is where the Jews combine together in divine service, right? Which is why we find the greatest expression of Jewish unity, as they're about to, to accept the Torah, where it says, um, you know that they were that they were there. I forget the, the, the right the the word exactly. And they were right? So the Torah symbolizes that. And the idea is that it's important for us to understand when it comes to serving Hashem, every single Jew is special, no matter what their actions are. And in every single Jew, there is something special. And when we're together and we're able to be united, no matter how we look at each other, no matter how we perceive each other. And we're able to accept each other for who we are. And, you know, we can understand that a person's a sinner, but we are able to accept him and bring him in and bring him in from the cold. This is something which is a tremendous um, uh, benefit and a tremendous merit for the Jewish people. And therefore, it says, on uh, you know, that in order for us to be able to get divine grace during a time of terrible danger, is that Hashem needs to be doing it for Knesset Yisrael, for the entire Jewish people, for the corpus of the Jewish people. And that requires everybody. That's not just about the righteous. Every Jew has a place in the corpus of the Jewish people. And it's interesting is that when you look at the Kol Nidre service, when we start, we say, that we, that we allow ourselves to pray with the Avaryanim. Who are the Avaryanim? So the Beis Yosef writes, it's not referring to sinners over there. It's referring to people who were ostracized from the community. We're doing various things. The reason why we have to bring them back in is because on Yom Kippur, we're davening for the salvation of everyone, for the, for the salvation of the Jewish people. And therefore, at that time, even though these people are sinners, we lift them out of Nidle because we recognize the importance of praying together with the whole Knesset Yisrael. And that's why there is that focus of Kol Nidre. Why Kol Nidre is at that point is because we recognize that we can only go into a Yom Kippur if we go into it, unified together as one Jewish people, as one Knesset Israel. I thought this was a, a, a nice idea. Okay. 
Um, let us let us start with the story of the ego, the golden calf. This is chapter. It's chapter thirty-two. Um, uh, Herman, do you mind starting off for us? All right. Hold on a sec. Sure. <clears throat> okay. Hold on. All right. Here we go. This is uh, verse eighteen. Uh, no. So I have it in chapter thirty-two, verse one. Verse one. Okay. Yeah. Meanwhile. The people began to realize that Moses was taking a long time to come down from the mountain. They gathered around Aaron and said to him, make us an oracle to lead us. We have no idea what happened to Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt. Take the rings off the ears of your wives and children, replied Aaron. Bring them to me. All the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took the rings from the people and had someone from has someone formed the gold in a mold, casting it into a calf. Some of the people began to say, this Israel is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Okay, Let's, so, so, so sorry Herman, for, for one second. So the story of the Egel is one of the most, it's one that you can't read it on a kindergarten level and because it's completely illogical on a kindergarten level, right? What do I mean by a by a kindergarten level? There, let's take on the fact that the ego was a simple idol. They built an idol. Nothing here makes sense then. They had a major revelation 40 days ago about God telling them don't serve idols. Okay, they're weak, they go, they go to our own. And they tell Aaron, make it for us. Aaron, who is this incredibly righteous person, who is treated as righteous for the rest of the Torah. I mean, right? He's the one who's doing the service on Yom Kippur later. He's the one in charge of doing all the service in the Mishkan. He, stay, he stays holy. And really, there is really not a lot of kind of... Yeah, Aaron's punished for the ego in a couple of ways, maybe. But there's not a whole lot of censure of Aaron, really. Uh, for what he does with the ego, which if he was serving idols, I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy, right? The other thing is that it's, you know, why does Aaron agree? So people want to say because he was scared. People want to say because, you know, he was worried that they'll all die. But if they're serving idols, Aaron has no right. Aaron has to die before they serve idols, right? Not only him, the entire Jewish people have to die before they serve idols. <clears throat> so this explanation that Aaron was scared of, you know, Hor was killed, and then Aaron being killed, and it would destroy the Jews. None of these explanations kind of make a lot of sense. I mean, if you look at the commentaries, the Rambam, the Kuzari, the Ibn Ezra, all of them, they all stress very clearly that we cannot read this as a simple act of idol worship. They kind of ask millions of questions on it, and it seems to be a strong consensus that to understand the Ega Hazav as a kind of simple case of idol worship is, is, is incorrect. So what then is happening over here? And Herman said a very interesting point so from, from, from Arya Kaplan's translation. One, that if you look at the Safaria translation, for example, you don't pick up on this. And in verse one, Herman translated when it said, make for us, right? So if you look at the Safaria, and I'm sure Hertz translates us similarly, right? Uh, Richmond, do you have a Hertz in front of you? Um, 
got the stone edition open, but let me open the hertz. So the hertz. So look how they translate it. Right? How does the stone translate it? The stone. Right. Stone says, um, and rise up, make for us gods that will go before us. For this man Moses, who brought us from Egypt, we do not know what became of him. Okay, so that's very interesting, right? So Herman translated, make for us an oracle. You translated, make for us gods, plural. Well, that's what it says in the Hebrew, right? So in Hebrew, it says, make for us a god, Elohim. Yeah. The art scroll is translating it based on Rashi that says, Harbe Elikos, make for us many gods. Um, Herman's translating it, the Rabbi Kaplan, based on the Ramban and Ibn Ezra, who translate the word Elohim as oracle, and they have reason for this. If you remember, Hashem tells Moshe, You will be for Aaron for a Elohim, and Aaron will be your prophet. If you recall, right, when Hashem sends Moshe to go talk to Pari, the Bezdin, the Jewish court, is called Elohim, right? Later, when it talks about making a oath, it says you bring them in front of Elohim, right, which is referring to the Jewish court. Elohim is does not necessarily mean God. So it's just interesting, right, how these three different translations are translating the same word based on three different commentaries. Right? What does the Hertz say? Paul Paul, do you have, do you have the Hertz there? Hey, uh, the Hertz, I'm trying to find the right place here. Uh, well, I have this stone. What page are you on? No, I'm, I'm looking for the Hertz. Can you help me here? Okay. I, 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 I just walked in. I don't know where we are. We're in. Uh, so, so it's chapter. It's chapter thirty-two, verse one. Okay. Uh, chapter thirty-two, <laughs> verse one. Okay, this is not even it. Asa lanu Elohim, right? Yeah, exactly. I say, I say lanu, I say lanu. Make for us a god. It says, uh, it says in the hertz. Make for us a God who shall go before us. Right. So, so Hertz, again, translates it like Sapphira, straightforward, literally, right? And over here, you see kind of, I know, one of my fast, kind of fascinating things about translations, right, is that well, none of these three people are sourcing us or telling us where they're getting it from, right? But there are three very different approaches to the story of the ego embedded in how they're translating the word Elohim. Okay? Interesting. Right? So, right? The commentaries say it always means that they're pointing at something, they're showing something. So, Rashi says that, that Satan had shown them an image of Moshe's body being flown in the sky, so they presumably assumed that Moshe had died in heaven. Now, there seems to be wide debate. Rashi seems to say, that Moshe told them he's coming back in 40 days, and they miscounted the 40 days. The Ibn Ezra and others seem to say that Moshe never told them when he was coming back. He didn't know. So Moshe disappears, and he's gone for 40 days. They know that Moshe didn't bring any food with him, any drink with him, and therefore they feel that he's gone. He died from hunger. He died, he died in heaven. He messed with the wrong angel, whatever it is. Right? And in fact, Midrashic accounts talk to us about how the angels wanted to kill Moshe in heaven, right? So it wasn't without risk of this. Um, so, so the Ebenezer says that they, they didn't even know 
okay? But they're still not clear, right? So, 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 lo yada mehayalon, right? We don't know what, what happened to him. They don't know. It's interesting, right? So the Ramban and the Benazir and the Kuzari say that what they wanted over here was that they wanted they they wanted another another Moshe. They wanted another Moshe. Why did and and but if you think about it, right? What, if they wanted another Moshe, they had Aaron. They had Chur. They had Yeshua. I mean, they had other people. Why go for the cow? Right? Why go for the cow? So this is something which we're going to talk about later. But they they wanted they wanted someone to uh, replace Moshe. And why? What are they stressing when they say ish? So the Ibn Ezra and the Ramban explain they're trying to point out he's gone for forty days without food. You know, yes, he's Moshe. Yes, he's great, but he's a human being. He can't survive forty days without food. So what does Aaron respond? Aaron says, Take the gold from the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters and bring them to me. So the commentary has explained that Aaron told them this so that their families should push back against this and it should delay. The Ramban and Ibn Ezra don't follow that approach. They follow that Aaron was gung-ho about this idea. Aaron was on board with the Ega. That's what they say. We're going to see why in a minute. But So then the question stands, according to the Ramban and Ibn Ezra, why does Aaron tell them to take it from their wives, their sons, and their daughters? And they say, They take them off their own ears and bring them to and, and, and bring them to So I saw a very, very nice idea. The idea is as follows. That if you remember, when Moshe comes to Parai, Moshe tells Parai, we want to go serve God in the desert. Parai says, Who's going with you? And Moshe says, we're going with, you know, Zikneinu uh, with our old and with our young, with our husbands, with our sons and with our daughters, right? We're all going out to go, to go serve God. And Pari tells him, in that case, no, right? And Moshe says, right? Because for us, it's a holiday. It's something which we need the entire Jewish people Everybody has a role in this, and we spoke about it at the time, right, that one of the central messages that Moshe was conveying to, to Parai was that Judaism and the embrace of Judaism and the experience of Judaism is one that's for everyone. The narrative of the Ramban, the Ibn Ezra, and the Kuzari is that what they were doing over here was that they were building a Mishkan. They were, Moshe was gone, and we'll see why they didn't want a human in a second. But they wanted a conduit. And we're going to see in some sense they also wanted a, um, a mediator in some sense between them and God. And therefore, they were constructing this Egel to play that role. The Ramban and draws a parallel between the Egel and the Kruvim. 
the Beis Halevi draws a parallel between the Eagle and the Mishkan in general, that the intuition was correct. The Kuzri also says this, others say this, that their, that their intuition was correct, that this was a form of the Mishkan, and I'm going to show another example, but th this was something which their, their intuition was kind of unmarked. And Aaron tells them a very important thing. He says, you want this to work? It doesn't work if only you guys donate. Yeah, it was a given that they were given their own rings and diamonds, whatever it is. It says this only works if we have buy-in from everyone. And therefore, go back and be, right, and be, right, you have to bring me from everyone. Everybody has to be invested in this. The women, the children, everybody has to be involved. Because that's how we build a Judaism. And they didn't listen. Whether it was because, as the, as the Mepharshim say, the women had a much better intuition over here than the men did about what was correct. And they refused. Whether because they were in a rush, whatever the reason is, is that here we see the first chip in this idea. Is that they did not bring along the whole Jewish people. They took the quick and fast route. They didn't bother getting everybody involved, and they brought it to Aaron. Then Aaron goes down. Yeah. Sorry, where, where do you see that it wasn't everybody? In the, I mean, in, in the Humar. In the... Because there seems to there's a very interesting, interesting switch in language, right? If you look at verse 2, right? At verse 2, Aaron says, uh, he's very specific. He says, right, um, Right? Go take out the gold rings that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Look at verse 3. So if you look, the Am refers to verse 1, right? So the implication is that we're talking about the same people in verse 1 and 3, right? Right. You know, Amcha, right? Because there's a, you know, there's a, a. So it seems that they that they that that the pasuk seems to make a point. Seems to be stressing that they did, or at least mentioning that they didn't take their own. Sorry, that they didn't go get their family stuff. They took their own stuff out. So Ha'am doesn't refer to the wives and children and everybody. Yeah. So you would say that in the case where Ha'am is being used the first time. But if, since in verse 1, it references Ha'am as the subjects of the story, right? Mm -hmm. So we're, we're assuming that when they use the language of Ha'am, it's reflecting back on that. Right? In, in, in verse number 1, right? You right. see, Vayar Ha'am, Vayikahel Ha'am al-Aram. So these are a certain group of people. Aaron tells them, go get your stuff from other people. And then the Pasuk says they give their own. So the implication is that it's not inclusive. You know, I mean, that's not coming to, that, that it's not an expanded Ha'am. And this is, this is not my derivation, by the way. This is like Rashi says this, other people say this. This, this seems to be how they, how they understood. So then he says, Vayikach <laughs> And he goes and he they make it in a mold, and then by Yomru and they say, This is your God, the Jewish people who took you out of Egypt. 
And this is something that's very, very difficult to understand because they weren't stupid, right? And the Rambam points this out, and the Abedazer points out. They said, listen, they said, people saw where this eagle came from, right? They, they saw the rings. They saw the nose rings. They saw that they were then melted down, put into a thing. It comes out. Yeah, it's nice and supernatural. It's munching on grass. It's walking around. It's doing all sorts of things, right? But, but I mean, well, what, what kind of what kind of ridiculousness is this? Just you know, there, there's a the, uh, one of my friends told me that he, uh, he the story. So his father, um, there was a very famous Israeli comedian. I can't remember his name, who used to be religious. He's not religious now. And when he was religious, he was learning in Panovich. And I think there was yeah, he had a roommate who kind of also left to fold right. And I think I'm not sure if the roommate also became a celebrity or not, but. They were in Panovich, and between and, and the third guy in their room was a very, very spiritual religious guy. And they really wanted him to leave the room. But he was there, he wanted to, you know, this religious guy wanted to kind of influence them. He was a really nice guy, a very kind of holy guy. He didn't want to leave. And they wanted to do their thing and whatever they wanted to do, and they didn't want to have this killjoy in their room. So they got a watermelon, put it up on a pedestal, and as soon as he walked into the room, they pretended they didn't see him, and they started bowing down to the watermelon, saying, The guy just lost it, ran out, and left the room. But that, um, so I can't read this verse. There are two verses that have, been, that have been ruined for me in this parsha. This is one, and Paul, you ruined one for me later. When it's um, a call on the So I can't read that without thinking about the uh, Naomi Shemer song. Um, of uh, and that's and, and I think like you know a couple of years ago you mentioned it to me and I'm like oh and now I can't read it without that um, okay so so it's okay it's fine um, so the so so but so what happens over here right he Yisrael I mean they know he didn't take him out of Egypt so here there's a very very interesting idea uh, yes yes Herman's pointing out Herman why are you quiet though uh, I just Printed it out. That's all. okay. So what Herman's pointing out is that the is that there is a, a there's a measure that says that the reason why the ox it came out as an ox is because Moshe had written on a block of wood or gold. I forget Herman was it gold or wood? Parchment, I thought. A parchment, you're right. Yeah, and he threw it into the Nile that said Ale Shar, rise ox, when he had to lift Yosef's uh, sarcophagus from the bottom of the uh, of the Nile River. And Micha, sorry, had um, had found this piece of paper and taken it with him. And you know, when Aaron threw the gold in the fire, he threw this parchment in, and that's why an ox came out. And there's a very interesting tradition about this because we, we talk about it maybe later about why specifically an ox, you know, the relationship to Yosef. You know, Mashiach ben Yosef, whatever. There's a there's a, a very interesting mystical idea over here about that. But in the path of the Ramban and the Ibn Ezra, you know, they don't go with that tradition. They they say that they deliberately crafted an ox, and the reason is is because they had seen by the giving of a Torah at Sinai, they had seen that on God's throne on the left there is an image of an ox of a, of a, of a, of a, of, a, of a calf. Sorry, and what's interesting is that the calf represented the the Midas Hadid, the attribute of judgment. And the Ramban says they wanted to make 
something that represented that sad so that they could bow down to it, okay? And try to appease the attribute of judgment. Now, this is not so strange because in the end of Mishpatim, Hashem tells Moshe, Hine anochi sholech malach lefanecha, I am sending an angel in front of you, uh, before you. God told Moshe and Mishpatim that he would not lead us directly in the desert. Now, there are, Mepharshim say that Hashem was foreshadowing the sin of the golden calf, whatever it is, there's all sorts of different approaches. But there's an interesting discussion in who this angel was. Many say it was Metatatron, which, you know, I'm getting into angelic things. But there are others that say it was Mikhail, who was an angel who represents the attribute of judgment. So this idea that the guide and the, the spiritual presence for the Jews in the desert was supposed to be a divine symbol, a divine kind of actor that represented the attribute of judgment was actually God's idea in Mishpatim, which furthers this narrative that the intuition here is correct. Now, what do the Jews mean to say, Asher And this is because the Jews made a very important mistake over here. Moshe to them had, had, a, had a dual role. There was a duality to Moshe. Moshe was divine, and Moshe was human. Moshe was Moshe Zeha Ish, Ha'ish Moshe. He was human, he can die. But Moshe also was the Malach Lefanecha. Moshe was a divine agent, kind of a, 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 kind of a conduit, a, 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 a divine figure that was leading the Jews. And what they were trying to say by the Egel was, was that this was a continuity, this was a continuation of that element of motion. Yes, Ha'ish Moshe is gone. The physical part of Moshe is gone. But the, the, the divine agent, the Shliach, the Malach Lefanecha of Moshe is still here. And the Rambam points out that as soon as Moshe appears on the scene, nobody takes the side of the ego. They all realize that this was a massive mess up. They kill the ego and follow and kind of take whatever liability Moshe, right, whatever consequences Moshe distributes because their entire assumption was predicated on the fact that the Ish Moshe was gone and this was a divine Moshe. But if Moshe shows up, then clearly they're wrong. So there was this very interesting intuition that Hashem had said, Hashem planned on sending out, it was always Hashem was not planning on leading them himself in the desert. And therefore to them, Moshe was this figure. And Moshe had elements of this figure. And therefore when Moshe dies, they want a, they want a, a uh, continuation of his figure. And in fact, it says that when Yeshua enters the land of Israel, there is in fact an angel who guides them. What about the influence of the era of Rav? Yes, thank you, Herman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna get to that. Exactly. Yeah. So the Ibn Ezra, we'll get that in a second. But I want to just first build the case for the Jews before we slap them down. Um, the the other the other point over here is that this was another very big issue which we see when 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 the Jews complain. When the when the Jews complain until now, you see a very, very similar thing. 
that when the Jews complain until now, the Jews always complain to Moshe. You took us out to kill us, you took us out to die in the desert. And we've spoken about this numerous times, right, that they ascribe too much divine agency to Moshe, right? And they don't talk to God directly. The reason is, is because they think of Moshe as this divine figure, right? Moshe is their malach. Moshe is their connection to God. Moshe is their portal to God. And this was the first catastrophic mistake that they made, was that Moshe was not that. Moshe was a human being. Moshe was a regular person, Moshe Eben Hashem. He had the highest level of prophecy. He was a tremendous tzaddik, but Moshe was, not, was nothing more than human. And the reality was, was that he... That Hashem himself was in the camp. That Hashem was leading them directly. And no matter how many times Moshe told them this, they couldn't get it through their heads. And the Kuzari explains that the reason for this was because they were so saturated from their surroundings with the notion of a material God, a physical God, they could not, for the life of them, be able to, to accept and to deal with the idea of a holy, spiritual, abstract God that somehow lives amongst them. And therefore, they kind of attach to Moshe these ideas of, of divinity. And if you look, so Aaron right now, Aaron feels that, yes, they have these mistaken ideas, but this is what the Mishkan is for, the Ibn Ezra says. The Mishkan was there also. It was a physical thing for people to be able to have a physical representation of a divine presence, of a place for, for a divine presence uh, to be. And the notion, as we spoke about at the time of the Mishkan, right, that the notion of a physical place, a physical center, a physical locus, right, for where there could be a divine kind of revelation, expression, was something that was fine. And Aaron feels that he built this with the ego. He says, yes, maybe they have the wrong conception of Moshe, but the Mishkan is going to be built, right? The right Hashem is telling Moshe about the Mishkan in the heavens, though, right? We talked if there was a big debate in the commentaries, if it was commanded before or after. But if you go with the opinion that the Mishkan was commanded uh, before the eagle, their intuition was correct. That there would be some physical role, some role for a physical kind of divine center, divine representation. So what does Aaron do? Right, look at verse five. Vayar Aaron vayiven mizbech lefanav vayikra Aaron vayomar chag l'Hashem macha. That he built an altar and he said, "Tomorrow we're going to have a festival chag l'Hashem." Do you remember in 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 Bai when Moshe is talking to Paro about bringing everyone out? He says, "We're going with everybody." Why? Ki chag l'Hashem lano. The same language, right? He uses the same language, right? In Parsha's bow. When Aaron, when Pari asks him, you know, where are you going? Why are you taking everybody? Moshe says, Ki chag So Aaron, to Aaron, this is the Miluim. This is, they are building a Mishkan, and now it's Chag We're celebrating, it's a, a holiday for everybody, right? This is kind of what we always intended to do. This is a perfectly fine thing. Aaron is still doesn't realize or is still working with the assumption that everything there is above board. 
And here is where Herman's point comes in. If you look at verse 6. They woke up the next morning and it started off great. And then where does it start to fall apart? And the language of Litzachek, right, as we know, it's brought down earlier also, um, is a language of Avodazar, of Shvichazdamim, of murder and of uh, uh, adultery. Here is where the Eru Rav go and they appropriate this kind of, this element of 3,000 people, the 3,000 people who are killed later for the sin of the ego, they go and they appropriate the ego. They take this great idea, this amazing intuition that they have, and they appropriate it. They misappropriate it. That's what the Ibn Ezra says. The Ibn Ezra says, that the problem was is that it was a good idea, it should have happened, but they misappropriated it. And therefore, and the Jews didn't stop them. The Jews buy in, it seems like fun, there's a physical God, this animal's walking around, the Jews kind of are, are, are kind of influenced by this a little bit. They don't stop it, they don't prevent it. And that's the sin of the golden calf, is that the thing breaks down at the end, that the air of Rav grow, grow and, they, and they misappropriate it. That, that's what the Ibn Ezra says. Ramban says a different idea. The Ramban and the Beis HaLevi says this very, very sharply. He says, the reason why things went off the rails and the reason why this was wrong was for a different reason. The Jews did not realize when they got the Torah that the time for spiritual initiative was over. The path forward in spirituality is one that was given forth by the, by the revelation, by the Luchos, by Hashem, now Hashem said very clearly, Don't make for yourself. Ah, Hashem later go says and make go says go make the kruvim. Yeah, because what matters is what Hashem tells you to do, versus what Hashem does not tell you to do. The 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 time for spiritual initiative is over once the Torah is given. Hashem has given you a plan. Hashem has given you orders. That's it. You had no right to do this. And, th and this is why things go off the rails. Because th they had committed to Nasev and Nishma, right? The Nishma, the understanding, the intuition is second to Nasev. Nasev, doing what they're told, right? Revelation comes first, understanding comes second. And the ego was, they broke that. They went back to their old model of abusing their own intuition for what's the proper way to serve God instead of doing what, what they were told to do. And that's why Hashem tells them, right, in verse 8, They turned very quickly from what I've commanded them, right? Because Hashem commanded them. And even though they were taught, Hashem, Hashem doesn't say they did an Aveir or whatever it is. Hashem doesn't talk about, you know, they avdu, 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 elokem achem. Hashem's problem is, is that Sarum and they right away broke the notion of commandment. They left the model of they listened to what I tell them to do and began acting on their own initiative. Okay. Um, let's start from verse 9. Paul, do you mind reading from uh, verse 9 a little more?
Uh, you're, I think you're, Paul, you're, you're, you're muted. <clears throat> verse 9? Yeah, verse 9. Hashem said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And now desist from me, let my anger flare up against them, and I shall annihilate them, and I shall make you a great nation. Moses pleaded before Hashem, his God, and said, Why, Hashem, should your anger flare up against your people, whom you have taken out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand? Why should Egypt say the following? With evil intent did he take them out, to kill them in the mountains and to annihilate them from the face of the earth? Relent from your flaring anger and reconsider regarding the evil against your people. Remember, for the sake of Avram, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself, and you told them, I shall increase your offspring like the stars of heaven, and this entire land of which I spoke, I shall give to your offspring, and it shall be their heritage forever. Okay. Yeah, next verse, last verse. Uh, Hashem reconsidered regarding the evil that he declared he would do to his people. Okay. So here, this is a very strange few verses, if you think about it, right? On me. On me. Well? Yeah, extremely. Right. Hashem gets angry. They deserve to be destroyed, right? Moshe. So what happened? Moshe, Moshe, Moshe davens for them, right? Why are you getting angry? Right? Why are you angry? Lama. That's like the first question. Then next the next defense. Right, that Hashem took them out with evil intention to go wipe them out. Right? Fine. He's kind of shaming God, right? Oh, you're not gonna look good after this, yeah. Um So please kind of turn away from the from the ra'ah that you want to do to your nation. Then the third defense is uh Remember the merits of your of your you know of their uh, um, uh, of their ancestors and your promise, right? Uh and Hashem relents. It's interesting, right, that he doesn't it refers to Hashem's actions against the Jews the entire time as ra'ah, right? Evil, kind of kind of ra, right? Which you can understand why in the beginning it talks about Hashem's anger, right? But this it's interesting that you would talk about divine retribution against them serving idols as as v'hinachem uh, al hara'ah, right? On the evil. Usually, the the the, um, the Maharal writes that Ra'ah is referring to when God removes Himself. Usually, when the divine presence is kind of moved away, it's called Shlil Hatov, the removal of kind of good. But the notion of evil is when good is not there, and therefore evil has power to kind of manifest. Right? That's 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 Ra'ah. That's Kalala, according to the Sefer Hasidim. So. Why is Hashem's retribution over here ra'ah? Hashem distancing himself. If anything, it should be, you know, Hashem is getting closer, right? It's going to give a patch now, right? It's, it's, it's uh, onesh. It's not ra'ah. So there's a very interesting idea that, that Hashem at this point, when he, when, when he sees the Jews rejecting the covenant of Sinai, Hashem says that they're taking back what they wanted to do. They said Nasev and Nishma, and now they're changing their mind. 
And the same way I have abandoned the, according to the Medrash, the children of Ishmael, the children of Esau, when they refuse to, to accept the Torah, these guys are backing out again. They're also backing out. And therefore, it's time for me to, to, to abandon them to their own fate. And this is what Moshe tells them. Moshe tells Hashem. Hashem, you already did so much for these people. You already took them out and you kind of manifested your, your, your greatness for them to the world, right? Now, what's Mitzrayim going to say? That the entire purpose of everything, right? We talked about this, right? That the role of the Exodus and Egypt was Hashem showing his power and control and hashgacha uh, in this world. And over here at the Mitzrayim, that's not what's going on. God just kind of abandoned them. God, there's no hashgacha. Hashem is not taking care of them. And therefore, Moshe is saying that it's going to undermine the entire message of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. The entire message of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim is Ki Hashem Hu Elikim Bekerav Haaretz, right? That Hashem is in charge of everything. Hashem kind of has a hand on, 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 on everything. And over here, you're not punishing them. You are, you are, you are abandoning them. But then he does actually kill. But then he punishes them. And you'll see that it becomes so. He abandons the Ra. He stays there. But then he tells Moshe, "Okay, but I'm going to stay here. I'm going to I'm, I'm going to be around." But first, he says, "I may have to destroy most of them, the vast majority of them, except for you, because we can't have a Jewish people which doesn't listen." Moshe says, "No." Then you know, Hashem says, "Okay," but then I can't lead them. Directly, and Moshe begs for Hashem to uh, stick around, whatever it is. And then Moshe eventually goes, and Moshe kind of exacts punishment. But the threat over here is not of death; it's of Hashem abandoning them. That's the idea. All right, we'll stop here. If anybody has any, you know, ideas or questions, please.